Revelations 18, verse 1 to 5. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling for demons, and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, for all the nations, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share her sin, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Further, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Isaiah chapter twenty twenty one to 10. In the year that the supreme commander, sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and attacked the capt- and captured it. At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, son of Amos. He said to him, Take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so, going around stripped and barefoot. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years, as a sign important against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria was led away, stripped and barefoot, the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles, young and old with buttocks bared, to Egypt's shame. Those who trusted in Cush and boasted in Egypt will be dismayed and put to shame. In that day, the people who live on the, boast, on the coast will say, See what has happened to those we relied on, those we fled to for help and deliverance from the king of Assyria. How then can we escape? A prophecy against the desert by the sea, like whirlwinds sweeping through the southland, an invader comes from the desert, from a land of terror. A dire vision has been shown to me. The traitor betrays, the looter takes loot. Elam attack, media lay siege. I will bring to an end all the groaning she caused. At this my body is racked with pain. Pangs seize me, like those of a woman in labor. I am staggered by what I hear. I am bewildered by what I see. My heart falters. Fear makes me tremble. The twilight I long for has become a horror to me. They set the tables. They spread the rugs. They eat, they drink. Get up, you officers. Oil the shields. This is what the Lord said to me. Go post, go, post a lookout and have him report what he sees. When he sees chariots... With teams of horses, riders on donkeys or riders on camels, let him be alert, fully alert. And the lookout shouted, day after day, my Lord, I stand on the watchtower. Every night I stay at my post. Look, here comes a man on a chariot with a team of horses, and he gives back the answer. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. All the images of its gods lie shattered on the ground. My people who are crushed on the threshing floor I tell you what I have heard from the Lord Almighty, from the God of Israel. Well, imagine you're visiting a church and the minister gets up to speak and he's not wearing any pants. And to start with, you're kind of pinching yourself, thinking, is this some kind of weird reverse nightmare? But then you realize, no, this is really happening. And he's deliberately not wearing any pants because he's making a point 
And you find out from other people there that he's been doing this now for nearly three years. Now, if I was, a visit, if I was visiting a church like that, I'm not sure I'd be going back anytime soon. Or at least I'd be sitting up the back with sunglasses if I did go back. It'd be pretty disturbing, not to say pretty distracting. But what we just had read for us in Isaiah, we saw that in that, in that chapter, that first chapter, Isaiah was doing something like that. And he was doing it because God told him to. And he did it for three years before he explained what it meant. Now, Isaiah probably wasn't fully naked, uh, putting all the pieces together in that chapter. Uh, It seems he was barefoot and stripped down to his undergarment with only his buttocks bare. And probably Isaiah wasn't like this all the time. Probably he would appear this way in public once a day for three years. And while it would have been disturbing to them, it probably wasn't because they had no idea what it meant. They were probably disturbed because they knew exactly what he was pointing to. They knew that this is what the captives of the Assyrian Empire looked like. They knew this is what it looked like when you were marched away from your hometown in ruins behind you and marched to a future enslaved never to return ahead of you. Isaiah, in this chapter, is delivering a powerful message from God about the events of his day. He's delivering a message that, as you can imagine, nobody really wanted to hear. And what we'll see today in Isaiah's message across these these whole ten chapters that we're going to be looking at is that opposition to God can only fall. We'll see human plans without God can only end in disaster. And we'll see that misplaced trust can only lead to dismay and shame. That's what we see in Isaiah's message. It's what we see in these whole 10 chapters. And so first of all, we see opposition to God can only fall. In the part of Isaiah that we're looking at today, God addresses all the nations around his people, all the nations around Judah and around Jerusalem. Now remember, Isaiah is writing 700 years, over 700 years before Jesus is born. And at that time, Assyria is the world's new superpower. But it's not just a new superpower, it's it's a new kind of superpower. Egypt was an old world kind of superpower. It would throw its weight around a bit and try and get its way, but mostly Egypt would kind of stay put down there in the south and let you get on with your business. But Assyria would reach across the world to your doorstep and throw down your walls, torture you, enslave the people who are left, and destroy you completely. And so the people Isaiah is writing to in in Jerusalem are like a tiny little island surrounded by these huge waves. Egypt is one big wave on the way out, but Assyria is like a tsunami coming on the way in. That's the context that Isaiah is speaking into. And so it seems a little bit strange that he begins this new section addressing the nations by speaking, first of all, to Babylon. Because in that time in history, Assyria and Egypt are kind of the, the big powers and threats to God's people, not Babylon. 
But look at what Isaiah says God's people will one day say about Babylon in chapter 14, verse 12. They'll say, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Sometimes um, people talk about these, this chapter like um, as if it's talking about the fall of the devil. I don't know if you've ever come across that kind of idea. But in the context, it's, it's actually talking about human arrogance. It's talking about human opposition to God. And Isaiah starts with Babylon because Babylon had come to represent all human defiance of God, all human opposition to God. If you know your Bible well, you'll know that, that Babylon is also sometimes called Babel. And Babel was the place in ancient times where people built a tower trying to rival God. And we see this idea in the next verse, in verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And in verse 14, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Babylon here represents what all nations have got a tendency to do. Instead of bringing peace and justice to the world, so often what nations bring is greed and chaos and destruction. So often nations arrogantly defy God, but through Isaiah, God is telling his people that ultimately opposition to him can only fall. Human arrogance might say, I will make myself like the Most High, but God says in verse 15, but you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Now, it's not just Babylon that was arrogant and defied God. Assyria is addressed second in this chapter, in in chapter 14, verse 24 and 25, because in Isaiah's time, Assyria happened to be the the supreme example of a nation doing this. But in every age, we see nations doing this. In every age, we see nations overstepping the mark, whether they be Romans or Portuguese or French or British or American or even Australian. History is is full of nations opposing God's justice and God's mercy and putting themselves there in the place of God. Now, even though this message here is addressed to Babylon, really this message here is is here in Isaiah for God's people. God wants his people to take to heart that opposition to him will ultimately fall. Although God might be opposed for a time, although God might even let people mistreat his own people for a time, ultimately, in God's own time, all opposition will fall. Every defiant nation, every defiant individual will ultimately fall before God. Opposition to God, it it looks like it pays off in the short term sometimes. And we might wonder why God allows opposition to go on for so long why God allows it to look like he's not winning. But in the end, every nation, every person who pushes God out of the picture 
will be brought down. There can't be any other way. The next thing we see in this part of Isaiah is that human plans without God can only end in disaster. Look at the the next nation who Isaiah addresses in chapter 14, verse 28. We read, This prophecy came in the year King Ahaz died. Do not rejoice, all you Philistines, that the rod that struck you is broken. From the root of that snake will spring up a viper. In uh, 721, Shalmaneser V died. And even six years later after that, when Jerusalem's own king died, Ahaz, there were still internal problems in Assyria. And so what do you reckon is on the cards for all the nations around Jerusalem? Rebellion. Rebellion against Assyria. Egypt was leading the charge and the Philistines were fully signed up. And with a new king in Jerusalem following the death of Ahaz, guess who's knocking on the door looking for rebellion buddies? Well, first Isaiah takes us west. And we see there where the rebellion is going to take the Philistines. Look at verse 31. Wow, you gate. How, you city. Melt away, all you Philistines. Next, Isaiah takes us east. East of Jerusalem to Moab. And in in 16 verse 3, Moab is knocking on the door saying, make up your mind. Render a decision. They want Jerusalem to join their plans and rebel. But look at verse 14. But now the Lord says, within three years, as a servant bound by a contract would count them, Moab's splendor and all her people will be despised and her survivors will be very few and feeble. Next, Isaiah takes us north of Jerusalem to Damascus and we hear in chapter 17, verse 1, see, Damascus will no longer be a city but will become a heap of ruins. And then finally, Isaiah takes us south to Cush and Egypt. And look at 19 verse 4. God says, I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord Almighty. Can you see here what God wants his people back then to see? Everywhere they look, it's going to be the same. North, south, east, west. They won't find the answers that they're looking for in the nations around them. If they go looking there, if they put their hope and trust there, what they are going to find in the end is disaster. If they make their plans without God, what they'll end up with is losing God, losing his protection, losing his care, They'll find themselves without hope, just like all the nations around them. And this brings us back to where we started. This brings us back to why Isaiah goes stripped down for three years. Because the next thing God wants his people to see is that misplaced trust can only lead to dismay and to shame. Look again at what what God says in chapter 20, verse 3. Then the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives 
and Cushite exiles, young and old, with buttocks bared to Egypt's shame. God was very powerfully saying to his people through Isaiah, don't put your trust in Egypt. Why would you put your hope in a people who themselves are going to be put to shame? On paper, Egypt looked like their best hope. But their best hope was never Egypt. And when Egypt fell soon afterwards to Assyria, then their best hope looked like Babylon. That's what some of them thought. But their best and their only hope against Assyria and against every danger was only ever God. But the sad truth in Isaiah and in history, as you read through it, is that God's people refused to put their trust in him. And so in chapter 22, Isaiah sees that Judah, God's people, is going to be in great trouble. God called them to turn and put their trust in him, but instead some of them look to the battle preparations that they're making. Some of them, they give up hope altogether and they just look to have fun in their last days. They say, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But in chapter 22, verse 10, we see the one place they won't look. God says, you counted the buildings in Jerusalem and tore down houses to strengthen the wall. You built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to the one who made it or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. It's it's, it's tragic when God's own people won't look to him. Now this section, this long section, ends in chapter 23 with a prophecy against the city of Tyre. Tyre is um, a super rich, kind of wealthy trading city. Babylon at the beginning of, of this section represents kind of military might and cultural kind of arrogance and pride. Tyre here at the end represents all the wealth and all the greed of the world. And so between Babylon and Tyre... God is is speaking to his people about everything that's impressive, everything that's appealing to them in the world around them, everything that, that looks like it can deliver you security and happiness and life. And he tells his people not to look out there, but to look to the one to whom all power and all wealth really belongs to him. Because all opposition to him will one day fall. All our plans without him won't stand. And putting our trust in power and wealth or anything or anyone other than him will only lead us in the end to dismay and shame. That's God's message to them in in these 10 chapters. It's really clear. Don't look to the nations to, to save them from Assyria. Look to him. But in the end, sadly, Judah got caught up in putting their hope in the, in the nations and they were almost destroyed because of it. All the cities in Judah were destroyed in 701 BC by Sennacherib's army, including Lachish, which you can see up there. There's wall released in Assyria of, of those battles. But the last minute, even though all Judah lies in ruins, at the last minute, God's people in Jerusalem turned back to God asked him for help, and God had incredible mercy on them and spared Jerusalem. 
Now, God's message for them was clear, but when Egypt and Moab and the Philistines and Damascus come knocking on the door, it was hard for them to take on board. God's plan seemed silly, and those plans seemed to have substance. It was hard for them to accept, even though it was hard for them to, even though it was easy for them to understand it. But what about us today? What is God saying to us today in these 10 chapters of His Word? Our danger today is not Assyria or, or really any superpower. And so our hope is not really in the nations around us, thank goodness, because I'm not sure New Zealand is going to be much help, and Antarctica even less. Our danger is first of all either to find ourselves in opposition to God or to find ourselves afraid of those who oppose God. You know, that attitude of lifting ourselves up as if we are God, that's not just something that nations do. It's what every single one of us does by default. It started in the Garden of Eden when... People chose what they wanted over what God wanted for them. But it continues in the heart of each one of us all the time. We think deep down that we can take the place of God. We think we don't really need him. We think we can sit on the throne ourselves and call the shot ourselves and get away with it. That's the way our world works. And it's what takes our world to such dark and miserable places. Our great danger is that we will find ourselves opposed to God like this and either we don't know it or we just don't care about it. But either way, God clearly says to us here, all opposition to him will one day fall. And for those of us who might be afraid of those who oppose God, sometimes, especially in other countries, for good reason, for those of us who might wonder why God lets opposition against him go on, why does God let it look like he's losing, we should also hear what God says here in Isaiah. All opposition to him will one day fall. The second thing God says to us here today, to us, is that our plans made without him can only take us to one place in the end. Back then in in Isaiah's day, they were tempted to make plans without God by looking to the nations instead of looking to God. But we are tempted in our own ways to make plans for our lives that in the end push God out of the picture just as much as they did. And just like them, our plans that push God out of the picture, can only end in disaster. And this, this should make us stop and ask ourselves as we're reading Isaiah here, are we living God's plan for our lives or are we living our own plan? In the face of, of the many challenges of your life, are you making plans that don't really consider God? Are we making plans that Only consider God as an afterthought, kind of sprinkling enough Jesus into our plans to make them look like God's plan. God's plan is not hidden out there for you and me to discover. God's plan is completely clear to us. He's made that plan clear at the cross of Jesus. 
And what he's made clear is that what matters in his world today is the kingdom that he's bringing, his kingdom coming in his king, Jesus. A king who offers us right now forgiveness for our opposition to him if we turn to him. And God's plan for us right now is that we would seek his kingdom first. Life's not about finding the right partner or making the business work or giving the kids a better life. It's not about finding happiness and quality of life. Life now is about Jesus and his kingdom. That's the plan that God has made clear at the cross. And sure, right now, it it looks like it would make more sense for us to be making different plans for ourselves. It looks like it would make more sense to join those all around us in in the more usual plans that people have for their lives, like finding a satisfying career to create meaning for ourselves, or living the good life now, working hard, and enjoying the benefits, or even better, not working hard and enjoying the benefits. Finding the one who makes us happy and, and, and not letting anything get in the way of that, or investing in family to find meaning, setting up our kids really well in the world, giving them every chance and opportunity. These are the kind of plans that we find all around us. And they are the plans that look like they make sense. But if these are our plans, and and if we make them without seeking first the kingdom of God, then our plans can only end in disaster. Because one day, all that will be is the kingdom of God. There won't be anything else. And we need to take this on board as individuals, but we also need to make sure this year and always that we take this on board as a church. Because even as a church, we can make plans that aren't God's plans. Like we could think that what we really need to do as a church is, is make plans so that we appeal to the rest of the world. But rather than look to God for who we should be, we could think we should look to appeal more to the world. We could change our beliefs so that we look less strange. We could soften our sexual ethics. We could soften Jesus' claim to be the only way to God. Or we could instead plan to give people more of a kind of self-help message that focuses on what people need to feel and do well in life right now. Or we could think that what we need is better music or better lighting or more entertaining services or a better building with people up the front who can appeal better to the masses And so we could plan to turn church more into a concert or a club or a center for self-help or just whatever works. That's one way we could make plans as a church without God. But another way is that we could think that what we need is to make plans to protect our position in society. So we could make unholy alliances. We could buddy up with Trump or Biden or... Albanese or Dutton or a lobby or a coalition as if our hope lies in political plans, not in Jesus. But in the end, for us, just like for them in Isaiah's day, it all comes down to this. Where are we going to place our trust? 
fully in God, who in Jesus dying for us and rising to life to rule this world in justice and mercy will rule it forever like that. That's his plan. Are we going to trust his plan? Or are we going to put our trust in our own plans, our own hopes and dreams, our own work and effort and struggles like we see in the world all around us? God here in Isaiah is telling us to do something different, something very different. He says, look to the one who made all your days. He says, have regard for him, the one who planned all your days long ago. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray this year that we would look to you. Lord, um, in these challenging chapters in Isaiah, as we see your people putting their hope in the nations around them in the face of, of terrible and dark times, we pray, Lord, that as we look to Jesus, as we look to the cross, we instead would put our hope in you, in what you've done there and what that means for the future and all eternity. Lord, help us not to put our hope in our own kingdoms, our own efforts, our own struggles, but to look to you, to trust your plan. And we pray as a church we would do this, that we not look to the ways around us to try and be your people, but we would look to Jesus, the humble servant king who laid down his life for us in obedience to you and who now rules as our king. Lord, help us to love him and trust him this year and always, we pray. Amen.